Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I was out in Concord, Mass. for Christmas. And as I often do when I'm out in Concord, I walked across the old North Bridge and watched the river flow by. As rivers have for time immemorial, it made me think of the passage of time. And standing on the bridge, I wonder, is the water coming towards me on the bridge, the past coming, flowing up to the now, and then coursing on into the future? Or is it the future rushing towards us, becoming a brief now, and quickly becoming the past, flowing ever farther away from us? I think of all the people who have stood watching this river, the American colonists and the English soldiers who fought and died there in the battles of Lexington and Concord of the American Revolution, the Native American Indians who gave the river its name, Concord being a translation of the original Musketaquid, the transcendentalists who wandered here in the 1800s, the tourists who have visited and who visit still, the children who play here. All the while, the river flows to the sea. And then perhaps some of the same molecules have evaporated from the ocean water, formed into clouds, rained down, and even come by again. Here we are, coming up against the end of the year, the last days of 2013. Here we are at that time of year when we think of all that happened in 2013, with us personally, with our communities, and with the world. Happenings that came and are now past. And we muse on what will happen in 2014. It's a time when we remember people who have died this past year, and when we wonder who will be born and who will we meet in this coming year. It's a time of year when we take stock of our shortcomings and make, ever again, resolutions about how we're going to do better next year and grow. It is a time of year when we come up against limits, that we fall short of our ideals, that life doesn't always go the way we hoped it will, the fact of our mortality, and that even the Earth is limited by its orbit. It is a boundary time, a time between Christmas and New Year's, a time when we're about to step over that split-second threshold between 2013 and 2014. When I think of limits and boundaries as we press up against the end of the year, I picture the Earth twirling through space, a huge sphere of color circling around a huger, friary sun, the other planets and stars as massive relatives in the dark distance, and a flash of a moment as the Earth 
looms up to the finish line of sorts on one side of the sun, and it all bringing me closer to my own finish line, the limit of my living, the boundary of my life and death. Boundaries and the limits they express can be scary and discouraging, but it is actually on the boundaries where we come alive and find our truest selves. So let's explore them. When I think of limits, especially at this time of year, my mind imagines ice on a pond or a lake or river, the limit or boundary between air and water. Sometimes if it gets cold enough in winter, the Concord River can freeze hard and deep, and if there's not much snow on it, you can skate along it for miles over clear black ice. It's best, of course, when the wind is at your back and you can fly along with the Canada geese and the ducks as it did once, when I, as I did once, and on ice that gave so pure a reflection of the sky that it seemed we were skating upon the sunset. Walden Pond makes for wonderful skating, and when it is black ice, meaning that no snow is mixed in, the whole town and surrounding areas come out to slide upon it. I remember watching my younger cousin circling incredible figure tricks upon it while the rest of us jumped as best as we could or gave up and went for playing hockey, and all of us skating or running fast and then throwing ourselves down on the ice to slide, and then stopping and peering down through the ice to the depths below. Hey, I think I see a fish or gazing at the reflections of the sky or the trees or ourselves. Ice can reflect the world around beautifully and it can provide a clear window into the water below. Henry David Thoreau writes in his memoir of his time spent living by Walden Pond, a lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is the Earth's eye looking into, it, into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. The ice takes the boundary between the air and the water and expands it so that it can be seen, hurt, heard, felt, and explored. Thoreau writes, the ice itself is the object of most interest. If you examine it closely the morning after it freezes, you find that the greater part of the bubbles, which first appeared, which at first appeared to be in within it, are against its undersurface, and while more are continuing to rise from the bottom, while the ice is as yet comparatively solid and dark, that you see the water through it. These bubbles are from an 80th to an eighth of an inch in diameter, very clear and beautiful and you see your face reflected in them through the ice. There are also already within the ice narrow oblong perpendicular bubbles about half an inch long, sharp cones with an apex upward, or oftener if the ice is quite fresh, minute spherical bubbles 
one directly above the other like a string of beads. But these within the ice are not so numerous or obvious as those beneath. He continues on with his careful description of the ice and its bubbles. The bubbles, he discovers, act as a burning glass, melting the ice beneath it. These are the little air guns, he concludes, which contribute to make the ice crack and whoop. The ice can boop with as much resonance as New Year's Eve fireworks. Some of you may remember times of hearing ice whoop. One year, the Charles River froze hard enough to walk on, and breasting away a dusting of snow upon the ice with my mitten, I lay my ear down upon its cold, cold surface and listened to it sing. I remember, too, standing, with, standing by a lake up in northern Vermont one night around New Year's Eve with my family. The moon was very young, so the night was very dark. The sky pierced through by silver stars. Suddenly, the crisp air rang out with a giant booming of the ice, as if thunder was coming down from the stars. And then again it sounded, longer this time, whipping a long crack across the lake, and away it went. We started singing to accompany it. A few of the ice, ice's cracks sounded almost like growls, and one of my uncles wondered if what if a bear was peering at us out of the woods? Then a few cousins pretended that they were a bear, and that was the end of the serenity of the scene. You have to be careful on the ice, of course. Warm weather and the sun shining down from above and hot springs burbling up from below can cause weak areas that you have to watch out for. My father always brings along a, a rope on skating expeditions, both for games of crack the whip and in case of anyone falling through. Perhaps because he himself is well known for his falling through adventures. One time, two stuffed animals, a green alligator and a brown and pink elephant, if I'm remembering correctly, were laying sprawled upon the ice way out in the middle of the Charles River. It was cold, and I saw them there for days as I walked to and fro from the Harvard Square to the Boston University. Other people, too, walking along the river would stop and look at them. They pulled at our heartstrings, these forlorn creatures lying there on the ice. But the weather hadn't been cold enough for any of us to feel confident that the ice would hold if we ventured to save, out to save them. What would happen to them, I thought. The ice would just melt under them and eventually disappear, and they would sink down to the bottom of the river and stay there. One day, as I approached the spot on the bank opposite the hapless stuffed animals, I noticed a young man leaning out over the railing that went along the river and throwing something. I came closer and discovered that he was throwing a rope out, trying to lasso the alligator and the elephant so that he could drag them safely to the shore. 
He had made some sort of fancy contraption to accomplish this. I can't remember it quite well enough now to describe it. Others stopped to watch too. He did manage to la get his lasso around the elephant and we let out a big hooray. However, to our dismay, the animal was stuck, frozen on the ice. What could be done? Perhaps he could somehow pull the rope in such a way as to free the animal, and he tried. I wasn't able to stay any longer, and wishing him luck, I went on my way. I went home a different way that day, but when I came back, a day or so later, the green alligator and the pink and brown elephant were gone. But so was the ice in that spot. So I don't know if they were rescued or if they are lying down there now in the murky depths of the Charles River. Why is it that we get so attached to our stuffed animals as children? What is it that holds us so, making us respect these relationships even as adults? My six-year-old son has a dog and cat stuffed animals, which he takes everywhere. You may even have seen them visiting here. They're here today. I still have my childhood teddy bear, the straw showing through on his belly and his feet, partially chewed by one of our teething dogs. My father's teddy bear is still with us, his grandchildren playing with it now. Donald W. Winnicott, a British psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, coined the term transitional objects to describe these objects that are so special to us. Transitional objects develop in and are manifestation of another boundary area, the space between the inner world, the instincts and drives of Freudian psychoanalysis, and the outer world, the sensory world of our shared reality. Winnicott explains that transitional objects come into being as the baby begins to understand that there is a, a me and a not me. The ph phenomenon starts with perhaps a corner of a blanket sucked along the st with a thumb, and it develops into an attachment to a special object, like a stuffed animal or a, a doll or a toy. Transitional objects hold a child's desires for fulfillments of their inner needs and their experiences of those desires, those needs actually being met by the outside world. Winnicott calls this space between inner and outer reality a playground. The child, or later the adult, playing gathers material from the inner and the outer worlds but resides in neither of these worlds. Playing is an in-between experience. Like the ice expands the boundary between water and air so that we can examine it, playing enables us to explore the boundary between inner and outer worlds. Other theorists also attest to play's in-between status. In his classic study on the relation of play to culture, Homo Ludens, Johann Huizinga claims 
The play does not fit into the great categorical antithesis of wisdom and folly, truth and falsehood, good and evil. Cultural anthropologist Victor Turner also points to the in-between nature of play. Play is, for me, he says, a liminal or liminoid mode, essentially interstitial, betwixt and between all standard taxonomic modes. Harvard psychologist Eric Erickson likewise speaks of play as an intermediate reality between fantasy and actuality. Play has its own limits and order. It has its own time and place. All play moves and has its being within a playground marked off beforehand, either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course, explains Huizinga. When we don't play within the limits, the game is stopped, the play is ruined, or it doesn't even happen. Children, when playing, know when they are making believe. Teasing is not play when it goes beyond a certain limit. Boundaries of a soccer field are marked, and a time for play is given. I played soccer all through college, and during one game, I got so intensely, anxiously absorbed that I wasn't fully aware of the boundaries of the field. When the ball went over a white line, I assumed the line was the perimeter of the soccer field, and I picked the ball up and started to throw it in with my hands. But the line was marking the penalty area around the goal, not the perimeter. I was given a hands penalty. Likewise, my grandmother once got so excited when she caught the ball playing football that she ran madly down the field, not heeding her teammates' cries, across the touchdown line, but the touchdown line for the other team. When a person gets so caught up in, make, in the make-believe world at which one is playing that one loses contact with outside reality, when a person takes a game so seriously that it is no longer fun, the activity is no longer play. Huizinga asserts that this power of absorption, maddening, this ability of play to run off with the players lies at the very heart of play. Winnicott's hypothesis is similar. Playing is exciting, says Winnicott, not because of the background of instinct, but because of the precariousness that is inherent in it, since it always deals with the knife edge between the subjective and that which is objectively perceived. It is not the instincts that make play exciting, nor the specific outside materials but the rather the transitional in-between nature of play, that tricky business of balancing on the knife edge without getting cut or falling off on one side or the other. There is a passage in the mountains of Norway called Beshagen. It is a knife edge, a rocky path 
between two large lakes, one blue, one green, both hundreds of yards down the steep cliffs below. As you walk there, you can see the world in every direction, breathtaking. Perhaps playing, too, can be understood as that exhilarating feeling of standing at the edge of oneself and at the edge of the world. It is in this playground, this in-between space, this knife edge of play, that one experiences a sense of being and of feeling real and that one gains a sense that life has meaning. Winnicott calls this space potential space. Potential because the space first appears when the baby does not have a solid sense of self. And realizing that the rest of the world is actually not one with oneself would overcome the vulnerable infant. Actually, he says, none of us can ever really be separate. It could be said, he says, that within human beings there's no separation, only a threat of separation, and the threat is maximally or minimally traumatic according to the experiences of first separatings. But in spite of this impossibility of separation, as we grow, a feeling of I am and a sense of me and not me develops. It is the experience of trust and reliability of the caregiver that creates this space, both separating and connecting us. It is a space where inner needs are met by the outside world well enough to keep inner fantasy satisfied, and the outer world does not impinge upon the baby, enabling the baby to relax and just be and truly experience his or herself. We are real. The outside world also feels real and meaningful because experiencing experiences in potential space enables the outside world to connect with what is our minds can imagine. Potential space remains throughout life as a place where our unique selves emerge and connect with others. And it is here in this in-between space too that the home is home of religious experience. The joining of subjective and objective worlds, the experience of being, of reality, of meaning granted by playing brings us in touch with the sacred. The sacred is saturated with being claims religious scholar Mechea Eliadi. God, as I am, says Winnicott, is a useful concept when the individual cannot bear to be. We experience absolute reality through the experience of being real ourselves. Standing under the vast panoply of stars on a winter night with a giant booming of the ice and the crunching of the snow, we can feel the enormity of outer reality pressing in upon our small selves.
Sometimes it can connect with the light, the song, and the dream inside ourselves bursting to break out. And when that happens, sometimes we can let go of ourselves just enough that we can dance playfully on that boundary in the space where the me and the not me come together, losing ourselves even as we find our truest selves. And then we return to the workaday world. Limits pen us in rather than launching us into expansive boundary worlds, sacred, imaginative, creative. The magic of Christmas dissipates. Our stuffed animals get stuffed away in trunks. Our ideals, our dreams, our hopes all seem as unsubstantial and as far away as clouds. But you know, that's all right. It's okay. If you've built your castles in the air, says Thoreau, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. We can bring our inner dreams and outer reality together, even if the result isn't exactly as it appears in our dreams. Use the limits that life provides to make our dreams real. It's a new day today, and New Year's Eve is coming up. The now that we stand on is always a boundary land between past and future. Our stuffed animals haven't died. They can come out of the trunks. They are always ready to be made real again. And so are we. Though we have to continue journeying, we don't have to go far to find the boundary lands. We look at the faults in ourselves, the chinks in our lives, the cracks in our castles, and become discouraged. But the cracks let us see the boundaries better. The cracks in the ice let us see its depth. And it is the cracks that make the wondrous booming sounds that we can hear. The cracks provide openings for the two worlds to mix. My teddy bear, Pooh, isn't any less real because of his stuffing is showing. The Concord River wasn't frozen this Christmas. The running water pushed big masses of ice along the river and under the old North Bridge as I watched it come up and flow by and away. We collected snowballs, sticks, and chunks of ice and threw them over one side of the bridge and watched them come out the other side. It's a game called Poo Sticks, invented by the character Winnie the Pooh when he was wandering along with pine cones, humming to himself, tripped going over a bridge, dropping the pine cones into the water, 
and then simply enjoyed watching the pine cones flowing from one side of the bridge to the other. When you're playing it, you can see yourself and all the world around reflected in the water just as you can when sliding along the ice. Enjoy your sliding along the ice. Don't be afraid of the cracks. Peer down into them. Put your ice, put your ear against the ice and listen to the cracks. Listen to the booming. And when the ice melts in the spring, look into the water as you throw a poo stick over one side of the bridge and watch it come out the other side and see the reflections of the castles in the air.